Excuse me, good morning. That is a moody video. My first time I've ever seen that before. <laughs> I feel like we're in a haunted house or something like that. I don't know. I thought like something was going to pop out of the screen or something. Wow. Well, welcome to church. Uh, I got to talk to our team about that one. Man, um, good to see you all today. My name is Aaron. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're in a series called Faith That Works or Faith in Action. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 13. As you're turning there, if you're new, I want to give you our mission statement, kind of the thing that makes us tick here at Friends Church, and that is that our mission is to become a community of authentic Christ followers compelled to change our world. And hopefully, just by the baptisms today, you get a sense of that authenticity, uh, uh, being a follower of Jesus. But it's that last portion of it, compelled to change the world, that gets fleshed out in a bunch of different ways, like trunk or treat, because we're going to serve people in the Inland Empire, and we're going to invite people to that. Uh, this Thursday night uh, is the state of the city at the city of Eastvale, which is their big kind of yearly time of vision for the city. And they're highlighting our church as an example of community for that city. And we're going to do, um, uh, there's a video thing they're going to do, and I get to open up the whole event in prayer, which is pretty awesome and an honor. Uh, but there's food trucks that, that are going to be there. It's going to be cool. 30 food trucks. And guess what? It's all free. The food trucks are all free. So if like, you want a, a good dinner, Thursday night, I don't even know what time it begins, but just go on, on Eastfell's website, friend, uh, at um, the city's website, and look it up, but it's going to be great. Um, so we want to be compelled to change our world. And along with that is this idea of beyond. Uh, we are a campus of uh, five different church campuses that belong to Friends Church. Our main campus is in Yorba Linda. We have a campus in Orange, uh, downtown Orange. In fact, I met a couple today that got here because of the campus in Orange, so good to guys have you guys today. We have a campus in Buena Park. We have a Spanish-speaking campus, Amigos. Uh, and then we have us here in the IE. And it's our hope to actually go beyond these five campuses and plant two new campuses in the next year. And so we have two guys who've taught here uh, on the weekend, Blake and Kyle, and they're going to gang up, they're going to join, uh, join arms, and they're going to plant a new campus in the city of Tustin. And then we as a church are also, not just our church, but all the campuses are going to adopt for a season a friend's church that's in Corona. So we are part of a denomination, and there are 72 Friends churches that are part of a larger tribe of churches, if you will. And there is a church that was planted in the, in the 1970s in Corona uh, on Ontario Road there, if you know that road. And they have been in decline for the last uh, 10 years or so. And their pastor is resigning and um, retiring, I should say. He's in his 70s now. And so we as a, a tribe of churches are going to help that church out and look for their next pastor for them and, and really encourage them. And one of the ways we want to do that is we want to help financially support these two new churches and this revitalization church. And so over the next three weeks, we want to ask us as a congregation to consider giving financially to start a new church in Tustin and to help revitalize this church in Corona. Now, you're like, okay, what does that mean for me? Well, here's what it means. We just want to get 100% participation by every adult. It could be you give a dollar, could be $5, could be $100. We just want to invite people to participate in the act of, gener of being generous to give plant and plant new churches to reach and baptize more people and I think that's a pretty cool thing. So prayerfully ask the Lord how you might be involved in that uh, in some way. We're going to talk about it over the next couple of weeks. But we want to think beyond ourselves and into God's kingdom as well. I want to uh, kind of transition us into a story about this topic this morning that we're going to talk about. And I was friends with a godly husband and wife couple that was in ministry. They were older than I was when I was in graduate school. And they were busy. They had two kids uh, life was full like many of ours are. They were driving around everywhere and life was crazy. And they told me later on that the, the passion in their marriage had died. 
It was kind of, uh, they had been lost, unfortunately. And so my friend uh, went into a 7-Eleven store before uh, internet existed, and he got a cup of coffee. And there, as he was in line to buy his coffee, noticed an adult magazine behind the counter staring back at him. And he said to me, uh, as he told this story, that it was like tunnel vision all of a sudden. The entire store didn't matter. All that mattered was that image facing him and looking back at him. And my friend in that moment was in a great temptation. You know, no one in that room would have known that he was in ministry. God understood his needs. His wife didn't. That's what he told himself. My friend was in a great temptation. And this morning I realized that when you drove to church, you probably weren't thinking, I want to talk about temptation. That's the topic I want to get to today. Or I'm sure this week as you drove to work and you had your coffee, I'm sure you weren't thinking to yourself, man, I really got to figure out how to overcome temptation. I, I, I realized that this topic is not a felt need by most Americans today. Because we live in a culture that says, just follow your heart. Uh, just, just, you know, listen to your gut. You know, if it feels good, do it. And so we don't live in a culture that even really considers what this is all about. But I do know what you and I want more of. We do want more freedom. We all long to be more free in our life, especially our Christian life, to do as God wants us to do. And so this morning, we're going to look at, in our passage, how to overcome temptation so that we can live more freely. How do we overcome temptation so that we can live more freely in our walk with God? In verse 13, James picks up the, the passage. He says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters, God, uh, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadow. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for this incredible morning already. Uh, we've already celebrated worship. We've celebrated you. Celebrated you we've celebrated these baptisms and now our attention turns to the word of God. And Lord, I know and I realize that in a setting like this, uh, that uh, many of us have come in with stresses and things in our life. And I pray just in these next 25 to 30 minutes that you would speak personally to each one of us, to our hearts. God, I can't do this. Uh, I don't even want to try to do it apart from you. And so I ask, even as I speak, Holy Spirit, you would be stirring in people and showing us how to live more freely for you. Thank you so much for this morning already and for everyone here. That's good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So freedom is at the heart of this passage. Okay, Freedom is at the heart of this passage. And there is some Bible background that we need to have in order for us to really grasp what James is trying to say here. And so I want to begin at the very end of the passage in verse 18. He says this, He, that is God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth that he might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now this is a beautiful summary of the Christian life. God chose you. You know, he started to stir in your desires to want him and then you, you reached out to him, but he was stirring in you. And that could be its own sermon. 
But I want to focus in on that last word of the verse, which says, you and I are a kind of first fruits. We're a kind of first fruits. What does that mean? What is that talking about? Well, you've probably heard of the Jewish Passover. And James draws a lot from the Old Testament in this book. And the Jewish Passover was a yearly time when the Israelites celebrated when God set them free from, uh, from slavery to Egypt in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. And uh, that was a celebration. It was a big celebration. Three days after Passover, they celebrated the Feast of First Fruits. I love all these different feasts they have in uh, the Old Testament. And the Feast of First Fruits was a, a moment where they gave the very best of their fruit, their vegetables, their, their grains, because they were an agricultural society. They gave the very best of it to God in response to him setting them free from slavery. It was a, it was a gratitude offering. And it was also a trust offering, trusting that they gave their very best to God in trust that God would provide for the rest of the year. That's what the first fruits was. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene and he redefines the Passover. And because of his death, he says that it's a new and better Passover that God has set us free, set you free from slavery to sin. And now James says that because of being set free from sin from Jesus, that just as the Israelites gave the first fruits to God in response to being set free from slavery to Egypt, now we give the very best of ourselves to God in being set free from sin. You see the connection there? That's what James is trying to do. He's drawing from a lot of Old Testament background, but he's saying, hey, now that we've been set free from sin, we are to give the very best of ourselves. You are to give the very best of yourself to God now that you've been set free from sin. There is a false view in Christian circles and Christianity and churches. You kind of hear it here and there in the Christian bubble, and it's called the therapeutic gospel. And, and no offense to any therapist in the room, by the way. This is just what the, the theory is called. But the therapeutic gospel says that God is like a big therapist in heaven and he affirms all of our desires, all of our wishes, all of our, uh, our, our, our intentions, all of our motivations. He affirms everything that goes inside of us. The therapeutic gospel says that God may not love our sin, but he puts up with it. And the therapeutic gospel says that you and I can stay in control of our life and the center of our life even after we've surrendered to Jesus, that we can still be the ones in control. We don't have to let God lead our lives. The therapeutic gospel says that God is in charge of my happiness and he's going to come to make me happy. And there is some truth in the therapeutic gospel, which is why it's appealing to people. In fact, you know, God is a God of grace. He's a God of unconditional love. But he's not on board with our cultural mantra that if it feels good, do it, right? Uh, the Bible says that Jesus was the servant of all servants, but God isn't just here to serve all of my happiness, right? We are called to serve him. And James must have sensed that his original audience in the book of James was beginning to kind of lean away from this true gospel into a different gospel. And so he reminds them that God has set us free from sin and now we are to live freely for him. So let's put ourselves in God's shoes for a moment, will you? Imagine that you have a friend. And your friend has a lot of college debt, okay? Like, you know, six-figure college debt. Maybe they went to, like, a really expensive college like CBU, 
You know, I know there's a lot of CBU grads in this place. Some of you are like, may that happen to me. You know, may, I need this paid for. Maybe, so you have a friend that has a lot of college debt, and, and let's say uh, you have another friend who uh, has, has wealth and means, and they go to them and say, hey, I, I want to pay off your college debt. I want to erase all that debt so that you can buy a house for your family. How awesome would that be? You know, a picket fence, beautiful green grass, two-story backyard. Like, I want to erase all that debt so you can live for the American dream. And of course, your friend's like, yeah, I want that. Yeah, for sure. So your other friend pays it all off. And a week later, you see both of them. And you find out that the one with all the debt, um, it was Amazon deal day. And they spent $10,000 of credit card, of their credit cards on new iPads. And your other friend who paid off the debt's like, why would, you, why would you do that? Like, what's going on? And they're like, yeah, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist the temptation. Like the iPads, they looked amazing. I wanted to buy all my friends an iPad. And you know, your, both your, your friend who paid off the debt would be so upset because instead of using their newfound freedom for a home, they bought a bunch of iPads. And not only that, but they were now enslaved to credit card debt. How sad would we all feel Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin, and then he invites us to live for a greater story, a greater story of purpose, a greater story for God's glory, a greater story for him. And how do we live for that greater story? Well, there are many truths in the Bible that help us with that, but James, in our passage, speaks to the darker urges and desires that would lead us away from living for the greater story and go back into slavery to sin. And so he says in verse 13, when tempted. When tempted. Now notice he doesn't say all the people with bad character when they're tempted. You know, them over there. You know, he doesn't say when all the young people are tempted. You know, when Gen Z and Gen Z and Y, we know they're always tempted by all the bad stuff. You know, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say in all the wealthy people because they have all the options. When they're tempted, then, then you know, he says when tempted. Everyone is going to be tempted. Stay-at-home moms are going to be tempted. Hard-working dads are going to be tempted. Your grandma is going to be tempted. I had a grandma, Grandma Eleanor. God bless her. She died about a decade ago. She was so sweet and so godly. And one day I was having coffee with her at her home, and she said to me, Aaron, I struggle with pride. My sweet grandma. I'm like, Grandma, you don't struggle with pride. But even grandmas will be tempted, right? Pastors will be tempted. Everybody in this room will be tempted. Temptation is anything that pulls you away from God, and it is to be avoided. Now, I became a Christian at age 20. I, I, I didn't want, to, want anything to do with Jesus until I was 20 years old. And so for me, I knew the right and wrong things to do before I was a Christian, but I didn't want to pay attention to it. I, I didn't really feel like the weight of falling into temptation. I just kind of did what felt best to me at the time. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're here exploring faith. You're trying to figure things out or get back into church. And, you know, you're kind of like, I don't understand why temptation and sin would enslave us, Aaron. Well, here's the reason. Temptation is a liar. It always promises you an easier life or satisfaction, but it doesn't last. It promises that life will be so much more simple, but it actually creates more problems when we fall into it. That little lie that you say becomes a lifestyle of shaving off the truth so that nobody trusts you. You know, that little gossip at work becomes a lifestyle of hurting people that no one wants to, to be a friend to you. 
That little bit of lust starts to cheapen love in your life, and soon your marriage isn't what it used to be. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. You've probably heard that quote before. It all begins in a thought. It all begins with an urge. It all begins with a desire. Now, I get it. Maybe you're here and you're like feeling a little tight in the chest. You're like, oh man, what kind of church did I just walk into right now? I get it. You know, it's just a legalistic church, man. Every, you're, we're going to pat you down when you walk in this place and figure out who you are. No, we are a grace-oriented church. We are oriented to grace. We are oriented to God's unconditional love. But here's the deal. There is no small sin to God. No small sin to God. Every sin has a consequence that one lie can begin to lead to a habit, a character. And as your pastor, I just, I don't want you to fall into that stuff, man. I want us, it's, okay, it's not very popular to live a holy life. I get that. I'm trying to sell you holiness. And I get it's not popular. But man, I want you to be. I, long, I want you to be a holy person. Because I believe it's, it's beautiful when we get in the rhythm of joy of what it brings to us. So what tempts you? Put it a different way. What do you seek to fill your heart with that only God's love is supposed to fill? What do you want to put in that heart of yours that God's given you? Because here's the truth. The fight for your freedom is a battle for your heart and not just your behavior. In the Christian life, isn't just about behavior. It's a battle for what goes on inside our hearts. So he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The source of temptation is not from God, it's from us. It's from our own hearts, from our own desires. The fight for your freedom is a fight for your own heart. There are weaknesses we have. There are vulnerabilities that we all have in our personality and our character. And sometimes the temptations and the urges get so strong that we might even think that God is the one who put them in our hearts. You know, Satan, he tempted Jesus in the desert. You've probably heard of this story at some point in your life. He tempts Jesus in the wilderness and he uses the Bible to tempt Jesus. Now that's some shady trickery right there, you know? Like that's trickery. And Satan will try to get you to think that those temptations might be from God. You know, the college student, they rationalize cheating on a test because they blame God for putting them in a, in, a, in a class with a professor that's really hard. You might think, why would I pay the IRS? They're unjust. Well, God doesn't want me to do that. You, and you know, the thief might blame God for being in poverty, and they might say, you know, I have to steal in order to live. You know, when I, when I, when I, when I was single and I hadn't met Krista yet, all my friends were falling in love on campus at the college they went to. They were all walking around, and I'm sitting there. I just became a Christian, and I was trying to live the way God wanted me to live. And I, I was like more single then than before I was a Christian. I was like, what is going on? God's supposed to bless me, man. And that went on for a couple of years. I, I had no game uh, at all with the ladies. Just, and, and so I went on a date with a girl that I had no future with. And my roommate, Nate, he goes, dude, don't do anything stupid. We all need a Nate in our life, right? And see, I, I was so tempted to cut corners because God hadn't given me what he had given my friends. And, and so as we think about temptation, those urges and desires are not from God, they're from us. It's in our heart. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. I love what one New Testament scholar said this verse means. It means that God is unversed in evil things. 
He is unversed in evil things. He doesn't, he's not tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt his people with evil. Now, does this mean all of your desires are, are bad and wrong? The short answer is no. Sometimes. Yes. Like, it can be all of it. As a pastor, I sit with people and I hear about their problems and I've realized over time that everybody has a, a, a built-in desire and a built-in need for belonging. Everyone has a, has a need for love and respect. Everyone has a need for security. Everyone has a need for significance. Everyone has a need for safety. Everyone has a need for transcendence. And those are powerful forces that I believe God actually created that are good inside of us. But there's a difference. There's a difference in God creating those desires and how we actually fulfill them in our everyday life. You know, a lot of men, we talk about wanting respect in the home. That's a good desire. And, but maybe you think, you're, you know, your wife or your kids, they don't understand what they do for you, what you do for them. I go to work all day, I come home, they don't, they don't really appreciate what I do. You know, withdrawing from them and, or yelling at them isn't going to get any respect. Or maybe you want a secure relationship. That's a good thing from God. But living together to test the relationship and test drive it isn't the right way to do it. See, these temptations are sourced in our heart and they often play on our desire for pleasure and ease and comfort. Look down at verse 14. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The word dragged away here is a picture of an animal in a trap that gets dragged away to his death. I used to grow up, I grew up on a ranch and we had a squirrel problem. So the squirrels would dig these holes and the horses would step in the holes and then they would break their legs and then we would have to put the horse down. This is like ranch problems. And I'm sorry if you're an animal lover, this is not the best story for you. I really am sorry, but it's, it's normal life on a ranch. So we set these traps out with squirrels and a little bit of food in them, you know, entice them, bring them in. And then in the morning, we'd get in the truck, we'd pick up the, 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 the traps, and there would be little squirrels in them. And I just got to tell you, we didn't keep them as our pets. You know, I'm so sorry. Like, uh, we didn't have, it would be kind of cool a little squirrel zoo. That would have been a pretty cool, cool idea. But we didn't have that. Instead, we picked up the traps, and we had to take them to their demise. James says that's kind of what happens to us. He changes his words. He says, when we fall into temptation, we are enticed. It's a picture of fishing. If you love fishing, you get it. It's a picture of a fish hook. And the fish sees the, the hook and the, the, the nice little you know, bait on the end of the hook, and it looks good. And it tastes good. It smells good. It is good. But when they bite into the hook, and that's right to the demise, right? James switches his illustration in verse 15 to that of a sequence of giving birth. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. A baby's conceived. A baby is born. A baby then grows to an adult. There is a sequence of events that happens in the life of the baby. Have you ever read the book, When You Give a Mouse a Cookie? You, you, parents all know this book. It came out maybe like, Lonnie's like, yes, I know this book. We all know this book. Um, this, I'll, I'll tell you the, the, the Cliff Notes version of it, so you don't have to go read it yourself. It's about what happens if you give a mouse a cookie. If you give him us a cookie, there's a sequence that's going to happen. He's going to ask you for a cup of milk. And then when you give him a glass of milk, he's going to ask for a napkin so you can wipe off his mouth. And then when you give him a napkin, he's going to want a little nap because when you have cookies and milk, you want a little, a little sleepy time, you know? So he goes to bed. He wakes up after, after sleep. He wants to play. So he asks you for a bike ride. You give him a bike. He goes on a bike ride. And then he wants to play basketball. There's a sequence of events that happen when you give a mouse a cookie. 
There's a sequence of events when we give into temptation, is what James is trying to say. It starts off in our desires, oftentimes good desires. And then those desires get twisted. We act on those desires, we sin, and then it leads to death. Okay, he's like, okay, Aaron, you're telling me that if I gossip at work, I'm going to die. No, probably not. But if we gossip at work, I know that it steals your joy. I know that it takes away your joy. When we, when we fall into temptation, uh, we, we experience a little bit of death with shame and guilt. That's how we experience it. When we fall into temptation, we experience loneliness and isolation. That's a little bit of death. When we fall into temptation, there are wounds that, get, that happen in our life and other people's lives. And I know in a room like this that all of us have been wounded because other people have fallen into temptation and hurt us. And that's a little bit of death. That's a little bit of slavery. That's not the freedom that God imagines us to want to live and experience. King David fell into sin in his life. He fell into temptation. He saw Bathsheba while he's on his rooftop while she was bathing. Hey, hey. And it says that there was a little sequence of events that happened. It says that he saw her while he was on his rooftop. Then he sent for her. Then he slept with her. Then he slaughtered her wife, Uriah, his wife, her, slaughtered her husband, Uriah. And then he felt separated from God. There was a sequence of events. And then he wrote Psalm 51. He said this, don't cast me from your presence, God, or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, stealing, stepping into temptation, it steals your joy, steals your, your hope, it steals your faith, creates isolation in our life. But there is something you can do. There's something everything, everyone in this room can do. It's very simple. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But when you're tempted, God will also provide a way out that you can endure it. God provides a way out of temptation every single time. The same stairs that led David to the rooftop to see Bathsheba were the same stairs he could have taken to get out of the situation. So here's the, the way to get out of temptation. When you start seeing it happen, you can walk away. But if you can walk away, run away. Run away from temptation. So, you know, if you're tempted by your phone, if you're like going on to something and looking at something, like maybe you need to get a, a dumb phone. I don't know if they sell those anymore, but maybe you can find one like, you know, from like 2001 and hook it back up or something. I don't know. But maybe you need to have some, some privacy checks or accountability partner. You need to have like my Nate in your life to talk to you about that stuff. Uh, maybe if you're dating, if you're a young person here, you're dating or, you know, uh, you're, you're, and, and, you, and you're going too far and you're compromising your purity, maybe you can't be in the same room alone. Maybe you're living together, but you love each other. It's time to get married. With good counsel, it's time to get married. If you can walk away from, te from temptation, run away from temptation. Now, I also know that many of us try that. You're like, okay, done that before. I still fell into temptation. I still fell into sin. As many times as we try, sometimes we do fall into it. We keep altering the truth at work, or maybe we look at horoscopes to reassure us for our future. You know, I understand because the fish hook, or the fish rather, wouldn't bite the hook if it was just a hook in the water. He wouldn't go for that. It's deceptive. There's something to it that allows us, that, that brings us to that moment. Sometimes the temptation is so powerful, it feels like we can't run. And I understand this in my own life. You know, every single Tuesday, we have meetings at our main campus for all the campus pastors. And it's in that environment of meetings about leadership that I feel the most tempted because of this little small thing called my ego, okay? Anybody else have an ego? No, you guys are a great congregation. I'm the only one who has one of those. In a meeting, 
I hear all of these different ideas and opinions, and my, my, I want to speak up, and my ego wants to tell everyone how to do it right. And I tell you, I can see it forming. And you know how it is. You start feeling it. I'm feeling it. I see the situation. And I want to, instead of listening and finding out more and being empathetic to the situation, you may think, Aaron, that is so small compared to what I deal with or the things in my life. Look, pastoral ministry is all about trust and empathy. And so this is a big deal for me. And then I, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. And then my ego, bleh, and I just say it. And then I'm like John Mayer, right? The song, My Stupid Mouth got me in trouble. I've said too much again. If you don't know it, you should go on Spotify and listen to it today. It's a great song. I see Rachel smiling, so I think you know the song. But that's me. Anybody else? Am I speaking? You guys are all looking. Yes, yes. Okay. Now, I want to read to you a, a testimony of a mature Christian who kept on falling into temptation, and he couldn't get out of it. Here's what he said. I know all God's commands are spiritual. Okay, I'm agreeing with that, but I'm not. Yes, I am full of myself. There's the ego. I spent a long time in sin's prison. But what I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another. And doing things I absolutely despise. Does anybody else relate to this? Where you're trying to avoid something and you fall into it without it, you're like, oh, why, why, why? Well, if that's you, you're not alone. Because the person who wrote these words is the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 7 from the message. Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, found himself falling into sin. There was a power to it. And that is why he says in verse 17 of our power, verse 16, James says, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Temptation is powerful because it's not always obvious. You'll rationalize it to be right. You'll rationalize it to be good. But it's not. It's deceptive. So there is something, though, that we can do. There is something that we can do to be resilient to temptation. Over the past few years, healthcare workers, and I know if there are some here in our church, have learned that part of their job isn't just caring for the sick, it's also encouraging the healthy to stay healthy. Like go on your walks and have your lunch salad and do all those things to keep, have your vitamins, all that kind of stuff. Um, in the same way, James, in the last two verses, gives us two spiritual habits to cultivate before you're tempted. Okay, this is the key. We have to cultivate it before we're tempted so that we're not deceived. And when we cultivate these habits, we're more resilient to falling into any kind of lure or deception. Here's the first habit. We are to cultivate an attitude of gratitude in God's goodness. He says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like a shifting shadow. We are to cultivate an attitude in God's goodness. Every good gift is from God. So what has God given you that's good? What are the good things that you have? You got a nice smile? It's from God. You got a job, it's from God. You got a family, it's from God. You got, uh, you got salvation, you got Jesus. It is from God. Every good thing comes from him. And we are to cultivate an attitude of gratitude in all the good things. We're not to forget that God is good. Uh, our God is the father of creation, it says, of the heavenly lights. He made the stars and the sun and the moon. And if you were up early like me when I was driving here, the sunrise today was amazing. It was beautiful. God created all those things and he is not like a shifting shadow. So if you're really bored, you can watch a shadow move, right? All day long. We could sit right here. We could see the shadows move. And, but God isn't like that. He doesn't move. He's not, the, he's not different. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's always good. And so part of building a resilience to any kind of deception and temptation is to remind ourselves regularly God is good all the time. 
all the time. God is good, right? I was hoping you guys would pick it up and say it with me. <laughs> God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And I encourage you to speak that out. Don't just think that. Actually speak it out in your life. Because a grateful heart is one that rarely falls into temptation of pornography. And a heart full of gratitude is one that isn't bitter. And I've rarely seen a thankful, grateful person be a gossip at work. Gratitude builds a resilience to temptation. Second habit we're to do is to cultivate and digest God's word. He says at the very end, we're back at the very end of verse 18, he chose us to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The word of truth, the Bible. The Bible is a defense against temptation. And we're to take it in regularly so that we have something to defend against. When Satan tempted Jesus, he used God's word every single time. Satan said to Jesus, turn the stone into bread. And Jesus quoted the Bible. He said, man will not live on bread alone. Satan took him up to the top of a mountain and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms. And Jesus quoted the Bible and said, in the Bible, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan took him to the top of the Jerusalem temple and said, if you jump off, your angels will pick you up if you say who you are, if you say that you actually are the son of God. And Jesus answered and said to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Every time temptation happened, Jesus pulled out of his heart the scriptures and he wasn't holding his Bible or his iPhone. They were already in there. He had memorized them. So in the moment of temptation, boom, he brought up what he had digested and had the scriptures at hand. So Ephesians 6 says that God's word is a sword, the sword of the spirit. It's the offensive weapon. So we're to strengthen ourselves against temptation in two ways. Cultivate a habit of gratitude in God's goodness and digest God's word of truth so that we can defend it and live more freely. Temptation makes people feel less of themselves. When we fall into temptation, we feel ashamed. And maybe today there's a, there's a situation that you just don't feel like you can defeat or you've given into a lot and you feel discouraged this morning as we talk about that. And I want to do an illustration this morning before we close and um, ask Matt Smith to come up and bring the two chairs. Matt is one of our teaching guys and great leader. And I'm going to ask Matt to pretend to be God. So watch out for lightning bolts, anybody? Front row? Okay, yeah. Um, so a lot of times in our own life, um, in our own life, we assume uh, that when we sin, God is the one who turns his back on us. That somehow, you know, we're left hanging because God did something. But the gospel says that when we sin, it's actually reversed. When we sin, we're the ones turning our back on God. And, and now you can kind of see visually what James is trying to get at. That God is unchanging. And every single time we begin to sin, it becomes a habit and a lifestyle. You know, we start to do a little bit of this. Get further and further away from him. And you, some people come to church and they go, I don't know where God's at. Well, I'm, I can tell you. There's just a big gap between us and God. And we experience this as a little bit of death, a little bit of separation in our life, a little bit of fear, anxiety, because we're not close to him. And the answer, of course, is, to turn. <laughs> the whole time, God's waiting. God's actually knocking at our, the door of our hearts, inviting us back in, wanting us to return, and we're to come back. Maybe this is like our third time at church, and we're coming back, and it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of patience, but we come back, and we do our daily devotions, and like, oh, I mess up. Like, oh, man, okay, coming back, right? <laughs> coming back. Sometimes it's not a linear journey, you know what I'm saying? And then we hang, and, and then we're like, oh, cool. 
So here's the deal. Let's bring the last point up because this was something we added the last couple days. The fight for freedom and temptation is won or lost by staying close to Jesus. This is what it's about. It's about a relationship with Jesus. Staying close to him. You can, you, can, you can say no as much as you can, but if you're not close to Jesus, we'll lose every time. You can know all the scriptures in the world, but if you're not close to Jesus, you're going to lose a lot. You, you, can, you do your daily gratitude journal. If you're not close to Jesus, we always lose. It's all about staying close to Jesus. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it, man. So that guy I mentioned earlier, the guy who went to 7-Eleven, I didn't tell you who he was or what he did. That man was the dean of the New Testament department at Biola University. And him and his wife were in ministry, and life was complicated, and marriage just wasn't going well. And as he stood there in the 7-Eleven looking at the adult magazine, he told me in private, he said to me, Aaron, I turned to God subtly in prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, I need you right now. And the way that he described it to me was that he had a new sense of strength and, and freedom and something filled him with a love for his wife and for his God and it cut the power that, that he was drawn into and he said he felt free and he could just walk out with his cup of coffee onto his next appointment. God's made us for freedom. He set us free, set you free for freedom. And he wants to help us live freely for him. And the whole point of James says is, turn to him, turn to him, turn to him. And so this morning, we're going to take communion, which is the ultimate act of us saying, I want to turn back to you, Jesus. If you have your communion cups, you can pull them out.